Hello and welcome to B2B Better, the podcast that exists to help companies rethink how they win new business. Each week, I sit down with marketers, creatives, and storytellers to break down the commercial strategies that actually work with the modern day buyer. Let's get started. Today on B2B Better, I'm very excited to be joined by Krista Morgan, general partner at Stage. How are you doing, Krista? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, as we were just talking about before we started recording, I heard you speak on the Private Equity Podcast a few weeks ago, and I have been looking for a guest who can talk PE and marketing for such a long time. So when I heard that episode, I was like, I need to reach out to Krista. I need to speak to her about this. Um, and I'm so thankful that you agreed to come on to B2B Better today. Yeah, no, ha- happy to do it. It's true. I guess there aren't that many private equity people who came have marketing backgrounds. I have been looking, I've been doing the podcast for about two and a half years and working full-time in a private equity back company myself, you would think it would have been somewhat easy for me to find uh, someone to chat to, but you know, two and a half years later, you're the first. So uh, I think that says something. I'm happy to be a pioneer. (laughs) We'll use that word pioneer. I like that a lot. Tell me a little bit about you, your background and what you do at stage. Uh, sure. So I, so I'm Canadian originally. I grew up in Montreal and then I actually started my marketing career in London. So I spent uh, six years in London, worked at uh, ad agencies there for brands like Barclays and Johnson and Johnson and um, Coca-Cola. And then uh, as you do, I went from marketing and then started a financial technology startup because that's a very sensible natural progression very natural natural progression uh with no background in finance so i um i moved to denver because i started the company with my dad and he was based there so i moved to denver colorado and i i've been there for the last 10 years uh startup did you know really really well for a while we um put out we were doing small business loans we put out uh, about a billion dollars in in financing and uh, got it up to over 10 million of revenue. And then sadly, it really didn't end well, which is how I find myself today at stage. So we're a turnaround private equity firm and we're buying early stage companies that thought they were going to basically be the next Uber and then didn't quite didn't quite go to plan. And since I went through that myself in a very painful way, I thought I would take those lessons and uh, turn them into a new career. And so that's how I find myself as a general partner at uh, Stage. I love that story. Um, obviously, you know, I'm sorry to hear that the business didn't didn't work out the way that you wanted it to, but all things happen for a reason. And, you know, clearly landing at stage is, is an amazing opportunity. Um, I'm curious to just dig a little bit into the working with your father piece, because I worked <laughs> with my dad for a summer. So he's an estate agent or a real estate agent um, yeah. for my American listeners. And uh, I, I worked in his office for, for three or four months in the summer as a teen. And at the end, I was just like, never again, absolutely never again. <laughs> Family and work, they just, for me, don't mix. How was it for you? uh, I mean, I don't think my dad's going to listen to this podcast, but I would say if if it, it, I mean, look, it was hard. It was hard. You know, we did it for a long time. The fact that things didn't end well, I think caused additional stress, but here's what I can say is there were good times. There were less good times. There were times that, you know, were um, really sort of incredibly difficult, but today, uh, two years later, 
we find ourselves not working together and we have an excellent relationship. And I have a, I had a daughter um, a year and a half ago and he's the best granddad. Like, so, you know, as hard as it was at the end of the day, your family, and that is what takes um, precedence. Absolutely. I want to dig a little bit more into stage because Mm -hmm. uh, it's quite a unique private equity company. I feel uh, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit more to this in terms of the kind of companies that it goes after. And you just alluded to it there a moment ago. Can you talk a little bit through what makes Stage different to other PE firms? Uh, sure. So, I, and I, so I don't come out of private equity, so I, I can't like say here's what all private equity does. But w- from what I read, <laughs> what I tell, <laughs> as I talk to other people. You know, I mean, often um, private equity is just looking at bigger deals. So you have venture that's funding early stage tech companies, and then you have private equity coming in to larger companies that are, and they're going to do like, um, you know, they're going to improve margins and it's all, it's all very, I would say it's probably more about like financial engineering uh, than it is, you know, how, how are we going to, you know, kind of really grow this business and and actually grow it in a hands-on way. Um, And so what we're doing is where is this in this funny hybrid, my hybrid model between venture and private equity and that it's a private equity control investment. So we're going into these companies and we're, you know, we, we make all the decisions. We, we keep management, but we're very active in terms of what that management is doing, who they are. But because the companies we're buying have usually under 5 million of revenue, they're still pretty small, which means you have to have a growth mindset. You have to have that venture, like, how are we going to get this thing growing? And, you know, how do we like really build a go-to-market strategy? Because at that revenue size, you do not have an established go-to-market strategy. You're still figuring things out. So it's a, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's a great space. Um, you know, 50% of companies that raise a series A will never raise a series B. And that just isn't information that most people know. And, and so they're like, oh, you're buying failed venture. And I'm like, yeah, but there's a lot of it. And failed venture doesn't mean failed, doesn't mean bad. It just means not Uber, which is okay. It's okay. There's a lot of great companies that have been built that didn't, you know, sort of take that traditional venture path. What are some of the kind of common reasons as to why these companies haven't been able to raise another round? It's usually growth rate, you know, and, and then grow. So they have not hit the growth targets that venture wants to see because venture investing is a, it's, it's a power law, right? It's a, you're, you're saying I put money in 10 companies. I'm going to pick the best two and I'm going to put even more money into those companies as they keep going. So you have to, you just have, you have to say, well, this one grew, maybe it grew at 30%. But when you're going at 2 million of revenue, if you're only growing 30%, like that's not venture growth. You want companies that are growing 150, 200% at that stage year over year. So, uh, so it's usually growth rate and it's usually because they haven't cracked the go-to-market. It's all, I think it all comes down to sales and marketing in those companies. They've got a product they have some customers, but they usually, what I see is they have not figured out who they, 
they really don't understand who their target customer is and they really don't understand how to market to that target customer. I'm going to, I'm going to love digging into that with you, but before (laughs) we go into that, I just want to make sure I understand the, the difference between stage build as a private equity company versus a venture capital company, because on one side, as you said there, it, it seems VC in that you're going into these early stage companies, um, who haven't really kind of developed that go-to-market strategy. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, your build is private equity. Is it because you're taking a kind of management stake within, you're just taking a larger stake within, within those organizations? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're control. And more than that, I guess it comes down to in venture, you know, you putting a, you're putting money out to a lot of companies and you're sitting back kind of seeing what they do. We are putting money like private equity. We are putting money into fewer companies and we do not sit back and watch what they do. We're very, we're heavily invested. Like this is a game of, you know, venture is about finding your home runs and our model like private equity is about singles and doubles. It is like, we want very, we want to look at something and say, we can get a 5X return on this, comfortably get a 5X return. If it goes well, we might get a 10X, but we feel very good that, you know, we can structure things and run things so that we can get that 5X return. Obviously, VC money is drying up in the global context as we kind of face the brink of a recession. And I don't want to spend too long talking about this because, we, we, you know, I want to really dig into the marketing stuff because that's what we're here to talk about today. But I am curious what you are seeing within that context in regards to deal flow. Are you seeing kind of more opportunities come your way? Are you seeing, are you seeing less? Like, how is that having an impact on stage? Yeah, although I did announce, I did see Sequoia announced another $2 billion fund <laughs> this morning. So clearly they're, they're feeling good about, about things. Uh, we are seeing more deal flow. It's really, I think what we're seeing too is more companies that are realizing they just may not get that next round and they're preparing, which is, which is great for us. So we, I always tell founders, like, if you can get a deal, that's our deals are never the best deal on the table. And a lot of the times, if you're talking to us, it's because, you know, things are not things are not going great. Yeah, However, your, op- your option A has is not is not. Yeah, your your option A is not coming right. We're not giving you a big valuation. It's now. I what I tell all founders is that one, I've been in your shoes, and and honestly, the uh, what we offer founders, I think, is a very attractive plan B. It is like you come alongside us, we're giving you a fresh start. We are giving you capital. We're giving you expertise. You're no longer alone. You know, people hear the word control and they're like, oh, I can't do whatever I want. And I'm like, you know, I was a CEO who got to do whatever I want. And it is lonely. It is hard. Mm. It is not like if I could have had, and I had all these board members that just weren't, just, they weren't particularly engaged, right? They, they were there, but they had their own jobs and their own investments. And we were just one small part. Whereas the companies we work with, like we know them, we are intimately familiar with how they work. We are able to speak to CEOs about the challenges they're facing in a much more intelligent, educated way that is helpful, I think. Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, so it is a lot, but we are seeing a lot of deal flow right now. Um just by nature of where where the market is 
You mentioned before that you have a background in marketing. I didn't realize it was in London where you started out your career. Um, all the best people start their careers in London, what I always say. Um, but how do you feel like, because you said, you know, as you said, your background is unconventional. You've gone from kind of marketing to building out of a finance, financial company and then obviously yeah. into, into stage. How do you feel like the marketing piece of your story in particular has given you an edge now in your role as general partner over at stage? I mean, you know, that's a good question. I love, so I love marketing. (laughs) I I love everything from the strategy um, to, I love the, I love the strategy. I love like the design and the campaigns, the branding piece of it. And, and I guess, and then what I really love is that, when it, it's the thing that makes everything work. At the end of the day, if you are running a company and you have not figured out your go-to-market, you will never, you, there's, it doesn't matter, I think, how good your operations are, how great your margins are, how, like all the nuts and bolts of the business, it, cause it's, if you build it, they will not come. That is not how it works. You have to so many, I've seen so many great products, honestly, great companies that don't have good marketing and they don't succeed. So to me, it's, it's the foundation and people think it's kind of, you know, fluffy and, you know, like, Oh, it's just marketing. And they're like, it's easy. I'm like, yeah, I mean, sure. I think, I think it's, I don't say easy, but very intuitive to me. I get it. I'm like, who's your customer? How do they think? How do you find a message that resonates with them? Easy. But the vast majority of startups that we see that are coming that have not gotten their growth rate, it's because they do not understand marketing. They don't get it. It's not obvious to them. As So you mentioned there that the companies that you're looking at investing in do have under sophisticated marketing and perhaps sales functions. Are there any kind of leading metrics or indicators from a marketing standpoint that you are looking for that influence your decision to invest within a business? It's all for us at the stage we're coming in at. It is what I want is to know that there is a customer that likes the product and I want to understand why. The biggest piece of diligence, like if you're buying a two or three million dollar revenue company, this is not, this is small. How much diligence can you really do? I'm gonna send you all their numbers and send you like at the end, the only thing that you have to understand is how the hell do they convince people to pay them two million? dollars a year like because that is real money so I'm like what did they do what why did those customers buy it what did they like what did they not like and do I believe that that like when I talk to a customer do I get a sense of okay yeah like this is a really compelling value proposition we're just not telling the story very effectively you know we we have a I don't want to, I don't go too long, but we have a company in our portfolio right now. It's just a great example. They're an early stage SaaS company, enterprise SaaS, and they're competing against publicly, their product competes against publicly traded SaaS companies in the US. And, but their product is actually, it's great and it's really unique. And, but when you go to their, their website, 
it just, so I was saying to him, like, it's like your homepage looks exactly the same as the homepage of the publicly traded company, except that on their homepage, they've got the logos of every major brand in the world. And on your page, you have no logos. So it's very like, it's not as compelling. So you've got the same thing, like in a less compelling way. And yet their product has an advantage that the others don't. I'm like, the only thing you should be saying on your homepage is like, Hey, we do this thing that no one else does. And they're like, yeah, but what, what about the people that don't need that? I'm like, don't worry about them right now. (laughs) Don't worry. Because you can't, you, you have no competitive advantage to sell to those people that are the competitive advantage you have is that your product is, and I said, if we can build five, $10 million of revenue on that, this other big company will buy you and then job done. We all walk away with, you know, a bunch of money. We all feel good. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. My, my experience throughout my career has been working for PE back companies, established PE back companies that have been around for years, if not decades, um, which I'm sure kind of make up a part of your portfolio as well, but um, certainly not early stage um, and certainly not private equity bank. Um, and it's very common. It's been very common for me in those kind of situations to see well-developed, albeit slightly bloated sales functions you know, direct response, cold outreach, cold outbound, very underdeveloped, very unsophisticated marketing functions. It's all about capturing the demand as opposed to creating the demand or finding at least a, a good balance between those two camps. And I think the reason for that is predominantly because it's worked, right? Like if you're a 30-year-old company, when you first started selling your products and services, the only real way to get in front of your prospective customers was to call them. Um, or go and like rent a big booth at a trade show and hope that you got the footfall to, you know, convert some into, into, into demos or into customers. Um, and that worked up until the dawn of the internet, right? Where suddenly there are now a vast number more channels out there for buyers to go out and do their own research and evaluate products and services independently without, you know, ever even pick up the phone necessarily. So I think, that's the reason why on the kind of more mature, well-established B2B company side, you do see these underdeveloped marketing teams because there's just this inertia because we've been getting results, albeit diminishing results over time, but we have been seeing some success. I'm curious to hear what you think the reason is, the kind of companies, the early stage companies that you invest in aren't going in with a marketing first mindset. Like why aren't the founders thinking about marketing from day one. So one thing we talk, I, having been a founder, when you are a founder, you are thinking about a billion things, right? You're going, and, and not just marketing, you're like everything from, you know, kind of how I've got to raise money. I have to develop product. I have to, you know, there's still a lot of the admin that goes in the company. I'm thinking about culture. I'm thinking about hiring. I, so I would say it's not that they are not thinking about marketing. It's that as an early stage company, you're just being bombarded with all of this stuff that you should be thinking about. And it's very, very hard to remove all those distractions and just say like, this is what I'm going to do. One reason when I talk to founders and 
try to convince them to take, you know, what seems like a hard deal from us. I say to them, you know, the biggest benefit that I'm going to give you is that all this stuff that isn't marketing and kind of high level product development, I'm going to, we're going to manage all of that. And all you're going to have to do is think about how do we get in front of these customers? How do we make them want our product? How do we make sure our existing customers are happy? You know, because honestly, in my mind, marketing starts with happy customers. Mm. Right? To me, the number one person you're thinking about in that marketing is like, who am I actually like, who am I actually selling to today? And are they just the very best advocates of my product that I can have? Um, so that's, it's really that you're trying to do a lot and you've, and let's remember too, a lot of the companies we work with, they've been given $25 million. So you have $25 million. You're like, yeah, I hired this. I'm outsourcing my marketing. I've got this. I've hired all these things, but, um, it, you know, but it really helps to have the, you really got to have, I think this, and I think it should be the CEO. I believe in finding CEOs that are very marketing customer focused people um it helps when that person is just they've really got a vision in their minds and then they're coordinating rather than just high. I know a lot of great marketing people but it's it's hard I think to be in a very effective marketer if you don't have leadership that are with you and like can sort of also have that like brand vision, you know, customer vision. I couldn't agree more. And this isn't about the founder necessarily getting stuck in and getting their hands dirty and actually doing the marketing themselves. It's more about just them giving a marketer or, or, or um, a team of marketers the authority and the remit just to go out there and, and do their jobs. Um, you yeah. at stage obviously invest in a wide array of different companies. You've got social games that you've invested in. You've got RFID systems for oil and gas organizations. Um, I think I read you got interactive uh, voice response services. You've even got like goats and cows cheese, uh, goats and cow cheese brand, which my my wife would love, by the way. Um, specifically looking at the B2B companies, what is the kind of conventional marketing and sales process look like when you first go into those organizations? You know, you've made the deal. How are they typically winning new business? Is it cold outbound? Is it inbound? Is it a mixture of both or something else? What does it typically look like? There, I mean, there really isn't, isn't typical. I would say at our stage, the most, um, most typical thing, excuse me, is, um, it, it has, it's been so often somewhat cir like circumstantial, right? Their biggest customer is usually someone that they had a relationship with, they got into, like it all, it was more like happenstance versus a like targeted, you know, here is our strategy. Um, a lot of people we see have been running SDR, BDR programs. That's very common, again, somewhat ineffectively. Like, so they're spending a lot of money on it and it's not it's generating a lot of activity, but it's really not generating results. Movement, not momentum. You know, the bet, so interestingly, the best company that, I don't say the best company we bought, cause that's made mean to our other companies, but one of our, we bought a company called Third Channel uh, in December of 2020. It was one of the first acquisitions out of, out of the new fund. And it, when we got to them, they actually had 
pretty sophisticated marketing and like they had all like hub, a lot of HubSpot workflows, like from a B2B marketing standpoint, they were generating good content. It was actually, they, it was probably the, the best infrastructure that I've seen. Um, and, but funny enough, they, for them, they just didn't have the messaging. Like mm-hmm. we ended up spending probably about $200,000. We brought in an agency that we like, we had this agency just do it. It was like branding and messaging and targeting. And it's been amazing now. And you talk to them, they'll say, oh, we're a last mile sales company. We, we enable last mile sales. And you're like, yeah. When I first talked to them, they were like, we provide labor and technology and we're doing this. And it, it was all just very unclear. So, and I, I actually love that because I'm like, you already have all this infrastructure all you need is messaging, messaging, again, kind of the easy part, right? For me. (laughs) Well, I mean, as you said, it's a mindset thing, right? Like they've already got that mindset that we need to be investing in marketing and importantly, the infrastructure to support marketing, because you can have every ambition out there to run an effective communications program. But if you haven't got the, the kind of systems and the processes and the tooling in place to actually roll that out and measure it and iterate and evolve it based on customer response. It's all really for naught, right? Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, I think, you know, it goes back to your point about, about mindset. I'm, I'm curious to know from your perspective, thinking about these organizations that do and have been running, you know, SDR, BDR, kind of go to market commercial programs predominantly and not really thinking about the kind of communications piece. Is that reflective of the kind of B2B buyer behavior that they're, that they're targeting? You know, is it because I, I, in my mind, for example, I'm just going to use your oil and gas RFID company. You know, for me, that feels like a very specialist solution or product. Um, It's a very, very niche. I imagine the relative target customer base for that is very small compared to kind of like a high volume, low value SaaS product. Is it just because, you know, do they have like an SDR BDR team exclusively because, you know, all we've got to do is really just pick up the phone and speak to these people. And once we speak to them, we're in, we're in the game. Um, Or do those kind of buyers expect something different? You know, are they looking for more kind of content led community led social media led campaigns and, uh, and initiatives just to, to evaluate which vendors they want to be working with? That's a, that's a good question. I'm not sure I really, so that, that company in particular, um, was sold in 2017. So I would say if, when I think about the sales marketing landscape in B2B, like I, you know, so I was working, I was working in agencies from 2000 and to 2011. And I feel actually like every five years, there's a pretty wholesale shift in terms of what, what like customers are expecting, what they will respond to, how that changes. So, you know, today, if you're, if I, if I'm looking at something like that, like that's a sort of quite call it te- like tech, it's almost like a technical sale, right? Mm-hmm. The way I would approach that, uh, you know, there it's, it is all about sort of understanding your buyer and and where they are. And, and it's, 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I would, how I would go about it today, but do I think that, I think that general SDR approach, like what was that book? Predictive revenue. Like mm-hmm. there was a time when like predictive revenue was like the biggest book and everyone read it. And, and now it's, it's just, it's a lot harder to be effective. I think no matter where you are, I just think we're all, t- we're being over-communicated to, we're tired. It's, it's not good. And, and you really do have to find a way to get people to want, like to be looking for your solution, which is honestly hard. It's a lot harder than just getting a list of people and call, picking up the phone and, and calling them. Yeah. I think just to kind of riff on that question again, I, you know, I can kind of understand the logic or, the, or, or where, how someone could get to the logic around, you know, this is a very technical sale. And as such, I can't communicate this through marketing channels. Like I can't be active on social media. I can't be launching a community. I can't be creating kind of, you know, video or podcast or, or, or written content that's going to really explain and sell this very complex and technical proposition. And as such, I need to invest in an SDR and BDR team who can pound the phones and just get in front of those target buyers so they can actually explain it to them. Do you think that's true? Do you think that even in the kind of highly complex technical sale, there is not space to invest in the more kind of, you know, demand generation channels like content, community, social media, et cetera? I mean, definitely not. I think if anything, the more, I think it's an advantage, the more technical it is, the more, the more niche, the more like, specific specificity is amazing for digital channels yeah. right like, like the problem is when you're selling something that's you know i think it's almost harder if it's a more generic solution you got to figure out like what are all keyword but if you know you know i don't you're trying to solve a very specific problem you have a very specific buyer you don't have to create as much content but I think you have to cut very specific content so that the minute they are looking for you, you're the only person they're going to find. It kind of speaks to that SaaS company that I was talking about. It was a, the thing that their product does, it basically sort of helps enable uh, training on legacy software. I'm like, that's very specific. But do you know how much legacy software out there there is? A lot. So we don't need to try. And, and actually trying to find the people that are managing legacy software at enterprise systems is like, that's hard. It takes a lot of work. So, but to make sure that if someone ever Googles, like, how do I need like online training, e- e-learning for legacy software, we can, we can be right there. from a search perspective and content perspective. I also think the opportunity is that, you know, probably their competitors aren't thinking like that. You know, I think a lot of these, you know, SaaS organizations, I don't really like, SaaS is not a great way of explaining it, but, you know, these kind of more, um, these organizations that have been born in the digital age, you know, they've been born in the era of the internet and it's just kind of more ingrained in their DNA to be active on social and to be producing content and to be thinking about community, et cetera. That just, you know, in those kind of pockets, let's think of like productivity software, for example, like Trello, Monday, ClickUp, they're all kind of the same thing. They're all very active across 
almost all channels, I would struggle, I think, personally, to be a marketer in those organizations because it's like, how do you fight against all that noise that's just being created? You know, yes, it's positioning, it's messaging, that plays a big part of it. But again, you are kind of competing with other commoditized services effectively. If you are an oil and gas RFID system, I would hedge a guess, your competitors are probably not out there doing all of this other stuff. You know, they probably also do have an SDR, a bloated SDR, BDR team who are just pounding the phones. They're not thinking about all the kind of demand creation marketing stuff. And that presents an opportunity, it would seem. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I think the challenge, I think if you are at, I think productivity software is a good example. I think if you're at those companies, then that's where I think you're, you get this product marketing. Like what you have to do is you have to be constantly improving the product, trying to come up with things your product does that no one else does. So like you get just, it's a much more, you need a much more like symbiotic relationship between your product development team and your marketing team. So you need something new all the time to stand out in this crowded, uh, in this crowded field, but you know, agreed. I mean, when I, so my FinTech company, we were doing invoice financing, which when we started, there's a there are, I don't know, a thousand invoice financing companies in the United States, like zero of them have websites. Like we, we had an online application and people were like, this is amazing. Like I like apply for financing online. This is like 2012, you know, so, yeah. and over the, and then over 10 years you have companies, but even still, even still like they, most invoice finance companies do not value marketing at all. Um, you know, and we, that was something we always tried to do really, really well. People always knew who we were. They had, you know, brand awareness and, and it, and it worked. We grew faster than, you know, the other companies did. They, a lot of them been around for 20 and 30 years and, and we were able to be larger than they were. Yeah. So it works, but you know, you have to, you have to be consistent cannot just be like marketing budget today, no marketing budget tomorrow has to be consistent. And, and, and you have to be committed to, you have to just appreciate it's a, it's a long tail strategy that is going to build over time. But then one day kind of like that, um, like the J curve, all the startups are looking for. That's how I think about good B2B marketing. Good is like a J curve, right? It's like all this investment, all this investment. And then one day you just your search is great. People are finding you. You start to get all this interest because you've got this foundation that is incredibly hard to compete with. Incredibly hard. Definitely. And um, I think to your point about the kind of timescales that people should be expecting, you know, it's any, any new program, any new strategy across any other function within a business often is afforded a good amount of time to get off the ground and to really start seeing results. And it's just funny how, when it comes to marketing, we think, oh, we need to get onto a new channel. Let's get our employees posting on LinkedIn. And if we don't start seeing new business rolling in within three weeks, it's a failure. And we've got to try and do something else or revert back to whatever we were doing before, which isn't working anyway. Um, so I think that time thing is, is really, really important. Um, you touched a little bit there on change. And I'm keen just to wrap up this episode and asking you directly what you think is going to be the biggest change and how B2B companies market themselves over the next five years. Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. I um, ask everyone. So this is not ask every, I'm oh, not so picking, <laughs> picking on you. I ask everyone on the podcast. I mean, 
here's, uh, I think, given the, just there has been so much, even I feel there's so much more noise everywhere. It has become so much harder to even just look at your email. Like, I think you're getting bombarded that I think we really are going to go back to people wanting to opt in to content. I think there's going to be a lot more like overlap between in-person, like in-person and then, and then kind of digital follow-up. I, I think, especially like given the pandemic, there's a, there's people are, are trying to, I think, have a little, like, it's been kind of digital overload. So I think B2B marketing is going to have to be a little more omnichannel, you know, thinking about sort of creating ways for people to get in. And I, and I think it's, we're going to have to get more, a lot more targeted because marketing itself has gotten a lot more expensive. Like the number of companies we've seen where the changes with Apple and, you know, the, uh, sort of advertising at the algorithms, like it's, it's actually just also a lot more expensive to be broad. So I think everyone's going to have to just be even more targeted and, mm. and as a way to control spend and improve conversions. I think we've got to be really focused on, uh, in, improving, um, it's not, someone said to me recently, like, the biggest change in venture we talked about is like, it's like, there is no, you cannot count on cheap capital. Cheap capital is not going to be cheap. And I think that's going to be true for marketing. So we're not going to have access to tons and tons of cheap capital. We're going to have to be a lot more targeted and focused. And really focus in on that providing of value, I guess, as well, right? Value and really getting to that target audience and really understanding who they who they are. So you may get, I think we'll might see less activity, but but in the end, who cares? If you get better conversion, activity doesn't matter. The only thing that actually matters is conversion. Couldn't agree more. And I think that's why you know, things like launching podcasts or investing in video or building communities, you know, particularly on this kind of like higher enterprise end of B2B is, is so valuable because you only need like one or two sales that come as a result of that over a, a long period of time to really justify the spend that went into it in the first place. I think of like a podcast series that, that I, I launched working for an enterprise B2B brand. We spent maybe like I don't know, 2000 pounds or something like that, all in, right? Like shooting the podcast episodes, the production, the hosting, the distribution, everything cost us like two grand. And we created that content and um, it lived on the website and we promoted it constantly over the course of about 12 to 18 months. And then one day I get an email from a salesperson saying, I was just talking to someone we just converted for a 30 grand deal or something like that. And they referenced the podcast as, that first point of contact, you know, that was what put them, put us on the map for them. And it's like, well, that's paid now for the, uh, that's paid, that's paid for the podcast 15 <laughs> times over. Fantastic. You know, yeah. um, Chris, this has been a fantastic interview. You've crossed off a, a huge bucket list item for me, which was talking private <laughs> equity on this podcast. Um, so thank you so much for that. Where can people learn more about you? Uh, I mean, LinkedIn is the best place to, to find me and find stage. Um, we are working on our own marketing. So come like, you know, follow, follow our page. And we put out lots of 
lots of content on uh, how to spend less money and what to do if you're running out. So, and you know. <laughs> who doesn't want to spend less money, right? Who does, <laughs> In this climate, who doesn't, who doesn't want to spend less money? <laughs> who, does, who doesn't want that? Exactly. I will drop the link to your LinkedIn profile and to the stage website in the description of this episode. But otherwise, Krista, thank you very much for coming on to B2B Better. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of B2B Better. If you want to learn more about how to win new business through modern day marketing, head over to my website, www.jasonrbradwell.com for a ton more interviews with marketers, creators, and storytellers on the strategies that they're deploying to create demand with B2B buyers. It would also mean a lot if you could leave a review of this podcast, hit subscribe, or share it with a friend. Bonus points for all three. It's all massively appreciated. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason R. Bradwell or connect with me on LinkedIn. See you next time.